Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have just joined us, uh, my guest, uh, she's a first-time guest on this podcast, uh, Katya Gold, an analyst and political risk consultant and a fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or SIPA. She's an expert on Eurasia and has a wealth of experience studying Belarus. Uh, welcome, Katya. Hello, Steve. Uh, great to be here. All right. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, now, I, I mentioned Belarus, uh, and we are going to focus on Belarus today, mainly on its relationship uh, with Russia and its role in Russia's war against Ukraine, uh, which this role is substantial, but falls short of what Russian President Vladimir Putin presumably would like for Belarusian troops to be fighting alongside Russian forces in Ukraine. Uh, there are some uh, Belarusians fighting on the Ukrainian side, um, but the uh, Belarusian government has not sent its uh, troops into Belarus. So my first question is a pretty simple one. Why isn't this happening? Um, after all, Belarus is the closest thing that Russia has to an ally, particularly in the military sense. Uh, and the two countries are in an arrangement they call the Union State. Um, they have been for, for many years. Alexander Lukashenko's regime has suppressed the opposition in Belarus in a way that's arguably even harsher than Putin has in Russia, particularly since um, the deeply disputed election in 2020. Uh, moreover, many of the Russian troops that crossed into Ukraine from the north and headed toward Kiev when Putin launched the large-scale invasion in February uh, crossed into into Ukraine from Belarus. Uh, and when they encountered fierce resistance, which uh, prompted a Russian retreat back across the border in a matter of weeks, some of the wounded were treated in Belarus. And um, a number of Russians conscripted more recently in the massive mobilization that Putin decreed in September have been trained or are being trained in Belarus. So again, my question is, why all these forms of cooperation and logistical support, but no direct involvement by Belarusian forces on Russia's side in Moscow's war against Ukraine? Well, I think, Steve, you have just partly answered this question when you mentioned all what Lukashenko has already done for Russia. And in a nutshell, I think that at the moment, at this stage in the war, sending Belarusian troops across the border would be more risky for Putin than actually using Belarus for all the reasons um, that you have mentioned. Um, there are several aspects in this. Well, first of all, uh, uh, we know that uh, the majority of the Belarusian public does not want Belarusian troops to be part of this war. The latest poll showed that 97% of Belarusians do not want Belarusian troops to fight in Ukraine. And that those figures, to some extent, also reflect what is happening within the apparatus, uh, within the um, general staff 
um, of the Lukashenko regime, the military regime. Not only does the public not want it, but most likely um, Lukashenko's generals also do not want that. If Lukashenko were to send the troops uh, to the Ukrainian border, across the border, to fight in Ukraine, he would probably lose the 25-30% of support that he has at the moment. It could destabilize the situation in Belarus. It could easily spark a new protest. We can see Belarusian troops actually um, uh, leaving the um, Belarusian army and joining the Ukrainian side. We can see all sorts of things that could come up and all sorts of risks for Putin um, on the one hand. On the other hand, if we look at the Belarusian army, um, it's really not... Um, very experienced. It has no combat experience whatsoever. Um, the number is a lot, rather large. There are 45,000 troops on paper, but this is just on paper. Most of these people actually, um, the, the army is not, um, does not have the full presence. Most of these people, they have to be drafted. Um, we really know that the best part of the Belarusian army is about eight thousand nine thousand people um the so-called special operations army which lukashenko used to some extent to uh, um disperse the protests in belarus in 2020 and these people send them across the border to ukraine who have no combat experience they have very uh, poor military equipment this is kind of you know light infantry army they don't really have tanks or any other proper equipment again they will probably be killed and they will not bring so much benefit um uh, to putin and of course lukashenko would not want to send um this part of the army because then he will be left alone so for all these reasons it seems that um, Lukashenko is much better off, and so is Putin, having the Belarusian, um, having Belarus provide all what it has already provide, provided to the Russian army. And this is enormous what Belarus has done. So I think we sometimes forget how actually helpful Lukashenko has been um, comparing it to sending the troops. We know that over 700 missiles have been shot from Belarus. Um, into Ukraine. We know that indeed Belarusian uh, doctors treated Russian um, soldiers. We know that now newly mobilized Rus Russian soldiers are being uh, also trained um, in Belarus using their uh, military ground in Belarus. And we also know about all sorts of logistical supplies that Belarus gives to the Russian army. And just again to uh, mention and wrap, it, wrap up my answer, a couple of more figures. We know that about 65,000 um, ammunitions have been sent from Belarus. We know that Lukashenko sold to Russia about 100 tanks, about 20 armed vehicles. So all that has been enormous help and probably much better than what in an experienced Belarusian army would have been um, on the battlefield in Ukraine. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much, Katya. I, I actually learned quite a bit there. Um, very, very interesting. I mean, I, I guess I'd been sort of aware um, for a long time of the, the fact that I, I think uh, just from observations that a big part of Lukashenko's popularity kind of throughout his rule, like including in the 90s, when Russia was fighting um, its wars in Chechnya, uh, was that 
the Belarusian, you know, Belarusian soldiers and 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 young men were, were not being sent into battle. And I think Lukashenko, that was a that may have been. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that may have been a key part of his popularity, kind of throughout the over the years. Um, so to kind of throw that away now, you know, um, even even after the repressions of you know the past couple of years in Belarus, it could be dangerous. Um, for him, but and but you also mentioned the the idea which I hadn't really thought of and, and didn't really occur to me that it's probably um, the, the the kind of support that Belarus and Lukashenko have provided uh, up to now is probably actually more useful and, and less dangerous for for Putin uh, than if uh, Belarus was were to send in troops into Ukraine. So thanks very much for that. Uh, one thing I'll, we, we both mentioned, we mentioned the, the various ways that, um, that uh, Belarus is cooperating. Now, one other thing recently, apparently uh, the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, visited uh, Belarus briefly on Saturday to sign a new protocol on uh, bilateral Belarus-Russia regional military cooperation. So, is that another um, kind of aspect of this of this uh, uh, support that Belarus is is providing? I would not read too much into this very brief visit because, indeed, something that they signed um, on Saturday had already been agreed early in August between uh, Putin and Lukashenko, so that was kind of a step in a way expected. Also, it probably, again, we don't know, there was no information given following the meeting, but it seems that there were some indications that the um, protocol may cover more, again, logistical support, uh, more um, uh, military side equipment support. And we also know that at the moment, for example, well, Belarus has always been very helpful to Russia in terms of providing some um, electronic software for Russian military equipment. That has has continued and has expanded recently. And we know that, for example, during the meeting, um, during the signing of this protocol, the head of the Belarusian military industrial complex was also present, as well as the deputy prime minister responsible for industry. So there were some indications that suggested that perhaps the protocol was more about getting more logistical and military support from Belarus than anything else. And again, as I said earlier, it follows from the meeting that Lukashenko and Putin had earlier in August. I see. Thanks very much for that. Um, and of course, I mean, over the years, there have been plenty of meetings and, and before the before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, um, in which it always seemed like Putin might be on the verge of, of finally kind of roping Lukashenko in and, and, and you know, making Belarus something closer to a part of Russia. But, you know, that hasn't happened. And I guess it's Kind of unclear how things may move um, after after the war, when, whenever that is. Um, but something to to keep an eye on. Now, the other uh, question I'd like to ask is somewhat related, or at least it may be. Um, it's about the death uh, late last month of Vladimir Makay, who was sixty four years old and had been Lukashenko's foreign minister for over a decade, and I believe he. Uh, had a role in Lukashenko's administration before that. 
Uh, now, state media reports in Belarus uh, gave no cause of death when they announced the news on November 26th. And as far as I know, they still have not given an official cause of death. But there have been reports uh, that Mackay died of a heart attack. Um, however, there's been a lot of suspicion surrounding his death and speculation that Russia may have been behind it. Um, as an article in the Washington Post put it, quote, his death provoked a blizzard of speculation that he might have been clandestinely killed by Russia with myriad com competing theories on the motive, unquote. So, uh, Katya, my, my question is, is why? Why would the death of a 64-year-old uh, man reportedly from a heart attack generate so much suspicion? Well, yes, I think in that sort of fog of war that there are lots of different conspiracy theories and things seem to be suspicious and murky. I think the immediate trigger for that was the uh, publication which came just on the just the day before uh, the death of Minister McKay, the publication by Robert Lansing Institute, which said that Russia would be a Russia wants to um, assassinate Lukashenko and put instead of him the current head of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, who is um, a Belarusian um, politician, member of Belarusian administration, um, instead of Lukashenko. So that was the immediate trigger. But there were also other aspects, of course, which looked a bit suspicious. Look, um, Minister McKay was supposed to travel to Poland to participate in the meeting of the OCE um, a few days after um, he died. Um, McKay was also perhaps seen in some Russian circles as an uh, um, agent of the West, as they called him, um, because indeed in 2015 uh, through 2020, McKay was um, sort of Lukashenko's right hand in the West. Lukashenko does not know how to talk to the West. He does not understand how things work, whereas McKay, he was... Um, probably fit in the role of this European diplomat who knew very well how to speak to the um, European Union, how to speak to the United States. He spoke also Belarusian. He tried to promote Belarusian culture. And he seemed as a soft sort of uh, diplomat compared to uh, Lavrov, for example. And that sort of created his image in the West that Lukashenko listens to him, that he has some power. And uh, all that combined made um, all these narratives probably appear, emerge, that uh, um, McKay may have been murdered by, um, uh, by Russia because Russia, McKay was the last remaining connection that Lukashenko had um, to the West. But in fact, um, McKay, first of all, was very servant um, very loyal servants to Lukashenko. He was never seen within Belarus as someone who had some independent thinking, someone who could stand up to his views. And he was and will be remembered as someone who loyally pursued the lines that um, his boss was um, directing him towards. Um, what was happening in 2015 through to um, 2020, this rapprochement between Belarus and the European Union that we saw, it was really coming from Lukashenko himself, but Lukashenko got very scared after um, Russia 
Russia occupied Crimea. Um, and Lukashenko thought that he should do his kind of more, be more active in his uh, maneuvering, famous maneuvering, to be playful a bit more to the West. And he released political prisoners in Belarus. And Mackay was the mouth um, speaker of uh, um, Lukashenko. He was not acting independently. So all these together, all these uh, um, arguments, perhaps, they created this narrative that he may have been a, um, assassinated, murdered, of course we don't know, but my case was 64, he was obviously under a lot of pressure, perhaps he was not very happy how things have um, developed under 2020, because indeed all his foreign policy that he worked so hard on um, basically became cancelled uh, following the protest in 2020. And that was definitely very sad for him. We know also that he had some family issues. We know that his eldest son worked in the foreign ministry and he uh, defected. He openly said that he does not support um, uh, the line um, of Lukashenko. And McKay spoke in one of his interviews. He said that this is his uh, very painful moment for him. So obviously McKay was under a lot of stress and it's very likely and possible that um, indeed, because death was natural. All right, thanks very much. That's a very comprehensive. Um, I, I uh, really provides a lot, a lot of good information. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned the kind of a, a rapprochement um, that was happening for several years before the before the election, in which uh, Lukashenko declared a landslide victory in August 2020, and the opposition and many, many Belarusians uh, said that he had stolen the election and cheated. Um, so, uh, and then everything that happened after that, the, the uh, huge clampdown on, on, on protests and the opposition. Um, but uh, so that that put an end to that, and then there was the, uh, and then the Russian invasion of of Ukraine um, took things even further. Um, but, you know, you point out he, McKay was kind of the voice of the mouthpiece of, of Lukashenko and he, his representative for those, you know, the, 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 those efforts at rapprochement in, in those years um, up to 2019. Um, so it does seem natural that perhaps in the West and, and maybe in Russia as well, he could be seen as uh, somebody who is kind of if not pro-Western and if not independent, somebody who is, um, you know, more likely to go a different way, I suppose, um, even if there's no evidence that he, that he ever uh, did do anything kind of independent of Lukashenko. Um, I guess my other question would be, I have read that while he was not uh, independent, uh, I think everyone agrees on that, I have read that he was kind of an opponent of being too close to Russia. I, I don't know, could you comment on that? Is there is there evidence of the idea that he was, uh, um, kind of would have resist or was it was against uh, being closer to, to bringing Belarus clo closer to Russia? 
Well, we don't really have uh, much evidence um, to that. The only, um, I think, the the main um, idea that kind of reinforces um, this narrative is that McKay comes from Western Belarus and like Western Ukraine. Um, Frodna in Western Belarus is well known for um, being a bit more pro-Western and being um, obviously a more independent of Russia. And McKay indeed tried to use Belarusian, um, the Belarusian language in his public speaking. He tried to put on some national clothes like Vishivanka and he definitely tried a bit, at least in Minsk, he tried to promote this image of independent Belarus. Whether that was genuine or not, we don't know. Um, I remember from my earlier years working for the OCE, there were rumors within um, the Ministry of Affairs that, uh, and McKay at the time he had it, the uh, presidential administration, that people in the foreign ministry who tried to bring Belarus closer to the West, they were actually blocked, their efforts were blocked by uh, Minister, uh, by uh, Oledimir McKay, who was at the time, as I said, the head of the presidential administration. So we don't know. We do know that he tried to portray himself as obviously more um, independent, pro-Belarusian, but not so much liberal, perhaps, or pro-Western. Right. And and I guess his comments on, well, both on on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and also on... um, uh, the 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 government crackdown um, on in Belarus. Uh, he you know he, I, I don't think he ever said anything that was kind of indicated any opposition to that publicly. And certainly he made some statements that were supportive of the invasion. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess that sort of that kind of remain a mystery. One thing I'll just go back and mention you know just over the years so much kind of pendulum swinging by Lukashenko. Um, I interviewed him actually in 2010. And at that time, he was on one of his kind of pro, more pro-Russian and anti-West um, swings of the pendulum. Um, but then, as you mentioned, uh, for several years, kind of went back after the invasion of, of, of Crimea, the occupi- after Russia occupied and, and seized control of Crimea, you know, there are a lot of concerns in Belarus and other former Soviet republics, um, you know, are we next uh, sort of thing. So um, so that, I guess, prompted a uh, move in the other in the other direction. Uh, yes, and I just would like to add that Oledimir McKay was the head of the presidential administration in 2010 when the first big crackdown on the uh, Belarusian protest happened, when about 700 people got arrested within a few days, and that was fully orchestrated and supported by him. Ah, very good, very good point. Um... All right, uh, we are getting a little short on time, but uh, we can take a few questions. Uh, if people have any, uh, again, if you'd like to ask a question, you can uh, raise your hand by hitting the button in Twitter Spaces to request to speak. You can also DM us or post uh, the question as a reply to the Twitter Space. Okay, I see uh, we have a question from Peter S. Uh, Peter S. Would would you like to go ahead? Right. Hi. You, you want me to speak now? Yes. 
yeah, it was really interesting just listening to that, and it um, ticks a lot, lots of boxes with me. Um, I've always seen this as um, a war of the survival of dictators, and um, it's uh, the biggest threat to Russia is uh, Ukraine going into democracy, um, uh, becoming prosperous, and right on their doorstep. And the second biggest threat to Russia, I think, is Belarus, because that is unstable. Uh, Lushenko, I always felt, seems to be a very unwilling partner in all this. He, he goes along with it. Um, I actually think he... Uh, I actually think if he doesn't support um, Putin and Putin's imperialistic expansion plans, uh, he could be removed and some other sort of administration put in place, which um, Putin is happier with. Uh, I might have got that wrong, I'm not sure. But I, actually, just very quickly, I think their intention at the moment is to desperately hold on to the four annexed areas, which is, uh, I mean, their intention all along was to take the coastal zones down to Moldova and around. Uh, that's been kind of delayed. So I think they're de desperate to hold on to the coastal zones they've got at the moment. And I think he will intend to have another go at Kiev probably in the spring. And that's what he's preparing Belarus for an ultimate push there because that would, uh, that would really finish things off if he could grab that city. Uh, thank you, uh, Katya. Any any comment on on that? Uh, the idea that uh, you know, Putin may be preparing um, for a new a new invasion from from Belarus uh, in the spring. Yes, I think it's uh, possible. We certainly uh, um, cannot rule it out. Um, we know that uh, um, at the moment there aren't enough Russian troops um, on the ground in Belarus. There are different estimates, but I think they're between 5,000 and 10,000 troops. And we remember that back in February, there were about 20,000 of them who started the invasion. And obviously uh, um, this year, if it happens next year, at least probably 20,000 would be needed. Um, and Ukraine is far better prepared, so maybe more. Um, so that remains to be seen. Um, it's, um, as I said, should not be ruled out. Um, we also know that Belarusian owner um, troops are being checked at the moment, and that check has been ongoing since April. Um, particularly recently, um, various drafting enlistment officers have been intensifying their verification procedures of those who are capable to serve in the army. Um, and um, politically, I think that if Putin were to become desperate, if he saw that there is no way for him to win the war, and that he would, tr and if he decides that he would like to try and take over Kiev again and would need Belarus for this, um, he would definitely be able to squeeze um, this out of Lukashenko. Lukashenko is ultimately dependent on Putin. Um, I think Lukashenko would be again quite happier 
to provide its territory as long as uh, Putin keeps him in power. Lukashenko is quite dependent on Putin politically and uh, economically. Um, Russia has become now the largest importer of Belarusian goods after um, the sanctions um, started working, the sanctions that the West imposed on Belarus. Um, Russia also gives direct financial assistance to Belarus, which again, the, um, the EU and other international financial institutions stopped giving Belarus since 20, after the 2020 crackdown on the protest in Belarus. So if Putin were to decide either to use Belarusian territory, to, territory for the invasion or if he were to decide that he needs even the small uh, contingent of the Belarusian army, I think he would be uh, able to twist Lukashenko's arms. So that would happen. All right. Thanks very much for that. And of course, there's a lot of time uh, still until spring. Um, unfortunately, it looks like the war may certainly continue through through then uh, with more death and destruction wreaked by Russia. Um, uh, any any other questions? We'd be happy to take one or two more questions if you have any. Uh, just give it a few more moments. Again, you can hit the button to request to speak or send a DM or post a question as a reply in the Twitter space. Okay, um, looks like uh, no more, last chance, but uh, if not, we can we can wrap it up here. And I really think Kach has given us some great, uh, great insights, uh, really, really learned a lot here. Um, so let's wrap it up. And Katja, thanks very much for joining me. Um, thanks for having me, Steve. All right. I hope we can we can do it again sometime soonish. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Katja Gord, an analyst and political risk consultant and a fellow at SIPA, the Center for European Policy Analysis. Um, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>